I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed day. The dark sacred nights, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Hello, and welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, April twenty fifth, twenty twenty one. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Encore Magazine, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good. Oh, I did good morning, didn't you I? You did. That's right. Wait, wait, instead, of, <laughs> instead of good morning, I'm going to say happy birthday, Cheryl Hodges-Selden. Yes, indeed. Yes, happy indeed. birthday. Great lady. <laughs> so also with us is a special guest. Nicholas King is with us. Nicholas is hailed as a precociously polished crooner by the New York Times. That is that is the pull quote of pull quotes. I love that, Nicholas. Uh, he has been in uh, three Broadway productions, Beauty and the Beast, A Thousand Clowns with Tom Selleck, and Carol Burnett's Hollywood Arms, which was directed by Hal Prince before the age of 12. That is... Really wonderful. He has appeared in many national television commercials, including the award-winning Oscar Maya Lunchables commercial, which um, made my kids eat Lunchables for 10 straight years. Wow. <laughs> King appeared on TV talk shows like The View, The Today Show, Sally, Sally Jesse Raphael. Did you wear the glasses, Nicholas? Did you take them off of Sally? I did not. I was I was too starstruck. <laughs> too starstruck, but then the next thing is Liza and David. You weren't starstruck by them? Shockingly, no. Ah. <laughs> so welcome to Broadway Radio. Thanks for getting up and talking with us. Thank you. Good morning. And you know what's funny is to this day, I have still never had a lun- uh, an Oscar Mayer Lunchables. Really? No, I still have never had one. <laughs> well, they're a very good food product. And I don't say yes. food because I, I I'm not, that, not really... <laughs> I guess it's a very important on the food pyramid. Yes. Didn't they? Didn't they give you a whole bunch of this stuff when you did the commercial? No, they didn't. Uh, they they did they did fill me with it though while we were filming because there were a few scenes where I had to eat them, and uh, I remember at one point I got so sick. So oh. they were kind enough to put a spit bucket right below the camera. Oh my God. So every time I would finish a take, I could just Whoa. go, mm, "These are delicious." Cut and then throw. Well, that's on that's it. like the, the it's like when you shoot a McDonald's commercial. Nobody actually eats that stuff. They, they wow. have spit buckets and things like that. Wow. Yeah. So you're joining exactly. us from. Uh, from Nashville, uh, yeah. and I appreciate you getting up an hour earlier than everybody else on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. So, oh, my, my pleasure. <laughs> what are you doing down in Nashville? Yeah. 
I'm down in Nashville uh, to uh, to visit with my record label, a Club 44 Records, and we are very uh, thrilled and excited and have our creative juices flowing to uh, get started on a brand new record. Uh, I just put out a record about two months ago, but we're working on the next one uh, for uh, hopefully the spring of, of 2022. So it's it's uh, it's nice to get a little head start and it's nice to, you know, put our, our creative caps on for for, for a change. Well, first of all, I love it that you still call them records. I really <laughs> <laughs> Well, I am I am secretly probably about 98 years old in my, yes. in my home, so it's, it makes sense. Well, we had a feeling of, about that when you uh, quoted from Funny Girl a few moments ago uh, before we went on the air. So uh, as a little boy, um, did you have parents who said, you're very talented, let's get you into this? Or did you say to the mom, dad, I've got to do this? It was more of the latter. Uh, my parents are, I like to call them civilians. They're not in show business. <laughs> <at all. laughs> They're civilians. But uh, they entered me into a contest, a little talent contest, merely just for fun, because it was an excuse to come to New York City ah. for, for a long weekend. And they were certainly not expecting me to win. And I did. <laughs> and uh, I, of course, at, at that point, I we got uh, approached by it. A number of, of different managers and agents and uh, my folks sort of took two steps back and went whoa 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 this wasn't what we had in mind we just wanted to come to carmines and walk through uh -huh. get some garlic exactly we just wanted really bad breath but instead we have our son now who's signing to an agency and uh, in about a month or so uh, I, I did my first television commercial my first this and that and from that point forward it really was me dragging them to the auditions. It was never the other way around. <laughs> well, uh, what did you do um, in, in this contest? Uh, did you sing? Did you dance? Did you do a monologue? What? I sang and I moved around like a, like a jumping bean. It was, uh -huh. uh, it was a medley to a karaoke track that my grandmother had spliced together uh -huh. for her, for her shows on cassette. And uh, the medley was, um, wait a minute, what did it start with? Uh, all that jazz naturally. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. uh, uh, Broadway Baby, oh. hmm. Cabaret, oh. with, a, with a big finish of Don't Rain on My Parade. Good Lord. <laughs> it was it was like a it was a Broadway belters medley. <laughs> and you were how old? I was about four and a half. Good Lord. Isn't that wow. something? Isn't that something? <laughs> By the way, um, since you came to New York City with your parents, did you take in a Broadway show during that period of time? We did. And actually, it was the first show I saw it was uh, big. So ah, it had to be, ah. yeah, it had to be right around that time was big. And then we saw Smokey Joe's Cafe, I think, in the same week. And I just, you know, just that's the, it was the feeling of being in that dark theater and watching something come to life right in front of you. I know we, you know, we've all had that moment where, you know, those moments stick out so clearly in your mind. And for me, I remember watching going, oh, I can I could do that. <laughs> this also, is in in is. fact, when you saw Big, I mean, there were all those kids in the show. I mean, so you identified yeah. with those kids and said, I'd like to be in the show. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, I can appreciate that. You mentioned uh, your grandmother. Uh, this would probably be a good time to to get into all that for our for our listeners who who aren't aware. Yes, my grandmother is Angela Bacari. She's a, a singer, has been since she was, uh, you know, about in her 20s. And uh, for a, a nice long time there in the 60s and 70s, she, she was working pretty much everywhere from the Playboy circuit to Las Vegas to Atlantic City and opening up for Rodney Dangerfield and Bill Cosby and Don Rickles and for all the, all the comics. 
Uh, she even had a, a couple radio hits out, um, you know, back in, during the, the disco days. And uh, toward the toward the end of the 80s, she she sort of semi, you know, took a step back and moved from New York back to Rhode Island. And I'm glad she did, because once she moved, that's where my mother met my father. And then I uh, I'm I'm here now. So I'm very <laughs> grateful for that. But since then, my grandmother has been a, a vocal coach and vocal teacher and does perform on, on occasion still. But uh, it's it's a very musical family that, that we all have between my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, just about everybody in our family plays an instrument or sings or does something musical. And, and uh, I know Liza has been a part of your life since <laughs> the beginning. Maybe you could uh, talk about that a bit. Yeah, well, uh, the Liza bug got started very early. Uh, that was really by accident. My mother sent away for a Thomas the Tank video for <laughs> me, and, and it came with a free gift of Liza at Radio City, oddly enough. Oh, and, that's, uh, that's really odd. You know, because <laughs> Thomas the Tank and Liza Minnelli seem to be a wonderful parent. Sure. <laughs> and uh, evidently, from what they tell me, I, I was so – I could have cared less about Thomas the Tank, and my eyes were just glued to this uh. video. And I couldn't take my eyes off it. And it was, I would watch it two or three times a day, you know, during, during those early days to the point where I still can't watch that video without being very obnoxious and just reciting and doing the whole thing from memory. But uh, it, it would, it would just build such respect for me for this for this woman and for that sound and for her performance style and I just I really I latched onto it and when she happened to be performing locally uh, in Connecticut my family took me to see her and she saw me in the front row she I was in my little tuxedo and my little bouquet of flowers and she uh, apropos of absolutely nothing decided to reach down pull me up onto the stage she sat me on her lap and uh, she sang a song to me and it was one of those, again, one of those moments where you go, oh, this is, <laughs> this is something to, to definitely remember. I was about five, but it's uh, amazing how vivid that memory is for me. So I guess I always kind of, you know, knew that our, our paths would, would cross at some point. And uh, a few years later, uh, my grandmother became her vocal coach. And uh, so, you know, naturally we were able to spend a lot more time together. And, uh, you know, she would come and hear me sing and she would, and then she got the, the big idea when I was about 11 that I should do a nightclub act. And so <laughs> for a, a number of weeks, she and I sat together and worked on a show. And she basically became my, my own Fred Ebb for, uh, about, um, you know, about the next, you know, from that point forward for the rest of my life. Wow. All right. Now, uh, given that you seem to know these names, uh, even as a little kid, when you got into A Thousand Clowns in 2001, did you say to Robert Lupone, tell me about a chorus line? <laughs> well, I did. Actually, I did. And I'll tell you why. Because I, uh, in, in the Marriott Marquis Alley way, at the time, they had a huge mural up of iconic Broadway yes. things. And, and Bobby Lou, as, as I call, was right in the middle. And there was that whole opening sequence of, uh, you know, God, I hope I get it. Uh -huh. It was right, right in the middle of that. So I did know. And of course, he was not very overly thrilled to discuss that with me <laughs> really yeah but of course i knew exactly who he was <laughs> that brings up a good point too because uh, when i've interviewed him i've been very careful not to mention the word patty um whenever i interview well, <laughs> anybody who has a sibling or a husband or whatever uh who's more famous i never bring it up and uh, did you bring up patty 
I did. So I might have been um, <laughs> I might have been educated in the people, but I certainly was very stupid when it came to questions like that. Uh, I You're a little boy. <laughs> I was a little I was just a little thing. But I remember asking him while we were on tour uh, before we m- made it to Broadway. I said, so do you think, uh, you know, is your, is your sister going to come to opening night or something to that effect? <laughs> and he said to me, I don't know. Why don't you ask her? And I said, oh, okay, note to self, we're moving on from that subject. <laughs> but I have to say, he was, uh, he, he's just a terrific actor. And uh, I, I really, I enjoyed working with him. I enjoyed working with that entire cast. You know, it was a small cast, but uh, it was, well, I think only a six person play. But uh, we, we had so much fun putting that show together and working with, with Tom Selleck was nothing short of a, of a masterclass, you know, and just a total, total joy. Well, I just looked it up and I'm, I'm thinking it must have been like an incredibly emotional experience for you at the time and in retrospect, because, yes, first of all, you were working with people like Tom Selleck and uh, Barbara Garrick and, and, and Mr. Lapone and Bradford yeah. Cover. But also yeah. uh, the show opened on July 11th, 2001. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm remembering now, I'm seeing that it closed on September 23rd. Mm-hmm. So obviously we know what happened mm-hmm. in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. And then also I noticed that also in the cast was the wonderful Mark Bloom, who was one yes. of the first COVID uh, victims uh, yes. that, that we know of. So I, I, I can only imagine when you think back on that show that it must be quite quite something uh that it you know emotionally for you it is i mean there's there's a lot of memories attached to it and of course you know it was tom's broadway debut so you know tom i have to say was very very uh generous with me and and gracious and looked you know to to make me his his co-star you know rather than than just the kid in the show and Mm -hmm. so he, he and i really forged this really you know you know good deep respect for each other and and very good friendship especially at that that time and still now but um you know we went through september 11th together we went through good reviews together we went through bad reviews together we went through his broadway debut together and uh it's it's a it's a nice memory that the both of us you know the both of us can have herb gardner of course was a very um atypical human being uh was he (laughs) hands-on was he hands-on in this production well, he had to be because I was uh, when I started, when I got the role, I was I was nine years old and the part was written for a 14 year old. Uh, and so I had to audition seven times for this role because wow. they, they weren't convinced that a nine year old could do the, the part of a 14 year old. Uh, but after doing auditions on both coasts and after seven auditions for myself, the, the last audition was at Herb's uh, penthouse apartment on the Upper East Side because he was too ill at the time to get out oh, and about. So oh. I had to, I had to stand in his living room with about six people and do my audition in front of him. And evidently he was convinced by the end of it. And uh, we opened up a, a few months later. Hmm. James mentioned uh, in the intro that uh, you were in Beauty and the Beast, but I noticed that's at, not listed in your IBDB page. Is there? Yes, a- and, I don't, and I don't know why. I, th- I need to get on that. <laughs> I need to find out how to do that. Yes, yeah. I, I did. Uh, that was my first job, actually. That was my first role on Broadway. And, oh, uh, I did you're that. playing Lemire, right? No, Bill. <laughs> no, I was not. Touche. You deserve <laughs> but, that, James. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, you know, I just found this out the other day. Evidently, I'm, I was Broadway's longest running chip. 
Oh. And I, and what's funny is it's it's not on IBDB. <laughs> I figured, gee, and something like that should probably should be on, on the yeah, website. Yeah, that's surprising. Sure. I mean, we know it's not infallible, uh, yeah. certainly. But, but well, you, you know, they, they've not had a lot to do this year. Mm, right. <laughs> right, it's true. Yeah. They could have caught up, you know. It's a definitely a work from home thing, you know. <laughs> yes, for sure. So you're still not at liberty to tell us how all those tricks were made, right? I think I am. I, th- I think once oh. the show is done, I, th- I think I think you're out of the contract. I, I see. No one, no one void. <laughs> but you know, of course, when you're in the moment, you have to respond. It's Disney magic. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's very fun but you know it's it was it was such i you know i think any time that you're doing a a, a project of something that, that you love to do whether it's a broadway show whether it's a, whatever whatever job it is it's always a blast but when you're a kid and it's disney it's it's almost like a double whammy because not only is this you know such a blast to get to go into work but now it's fun to get to go in and you know become a disney character and to, and i think some of my favorite memories are on stage listening because i was in the beauty and the beast scene where they do the dance and she's in the you know the big yellow gown Mm -hmm. and i don't i didn't say anything i didn't sing anything i was just on stage with with my mother the teapot (laughs) and uh that's a very strange sentence but um it is (laughs) my my favorite moments were sitting in the cart on the stage and listening to all the the little girls and boys reaction when the curtain parted and bell appeared in that in that yellow gown and just the, the wave of, oh, oh, you know, <laughs> just the reaction. And just to know that, you know, you could, you know, it was, you could visibly see making these little kids dreams come true, you know, for, for, for a couple hours. And it was just so special and something so heartwarming that I'll, I'll never forget. Was Beth Fowler, uh, your mother? No, I had Barbara Marino. Oh, oh lovely. Lady. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. the sweetest. And I've, I've had a really good cast actually. I had, um, um, Patrick Page was Lumiere when while I did it, uh. <laughs> and uh, Andrea McArdle was was Belle. Uh. So I I had more fun with that cast. And again, you know, like like in uh, A Thousand Clowns, I felt very much a part of the family. I never felt like you know n- nobody in that in that cast or crew treated treated me or the other kid who I shared the role with as you know the kids. They they treated us like like equals, and you know it was just it's something that I, I do treasure because, you know, you, I don't know that you always find that, but I just think that our casts happen to be very, very, very good. <laughs> very, very lovely to work with. Mm-hmm. Now, Judy Holliday in the movie of uh, the solid gold Cadillac talks about the problem of being in Shakespeare is that you never get to sit down unless you're a King. Um, here you are, you're <laughs> sitting down for most of beauty and the beast. Uh, was it cramped in that thing? Uh, was it uncomfortable? Oh, it's, I still have neck problems because of ah. it. I, I, I do actually, but it's, uh, it's, it was, you know, the, I think the biggest irony of that whole situation was in order to fit into that box, you had to be 48 inches or shorter. And so even though I, I did it for, uh, however long I did it, I was the shortest uh. <laughs> kid for the, for the longest. But I remember the day when they said, well, yeah, you're at about 48 and a half. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you're kidding me. I'm getting too tall for, for the role because at this point as a full on adult now, I'm, I stand at a whopping five, two. Uh-huh. So, to, so to think back and think, wow, I, I got too tall for the part is a thought that I will never, ever have to have again. 
it's just the biggest irony of, of life. <laughs> Did Andrea McArdle by any chance talk about that type of thing? Because a nanny, of course, if you got to be too tall, um, you, you had to walk the plank as well. Um. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. Well, we, of course, she helped me through it. She helped me pack uh-huh. up my dressing room. Oh, <laughs> I was, I was a wreck. And she said, you know, she came on up and she helped me put stuff away in boxes. And she was so cool and such a team player and mm. so much fun, so much fun to work with. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to hear it. So let's talk about your uh, your uh, new, well, uh, a few month old new album, Act One, which you're having a release party coming up this week. So tell us a little, a little bit I'm about s- the album, and uh, you're celebrating 25 years of recordings. What is what does that really mean? To let people <laughs> know what that means. Yes. Yeah, so uh, basically, the record is a, is a compilation of recordings that I've made throughout the years. Uh, the first recording is a little clip of me at four and a half years old, right around the time of the Sally show and you know the, the awards and all that, the, what we were talking about earlier uh, at a concert that I sat in with uh, of my grandmother's. And then it follows you sort of throughout the years with different releases that I've put out and unreleased material, uh, some, uh, you know, some live things, some never before heard recordings, and then some new things that, uh, that we recorded during the, the pandemic. And, uh, it really just started because I wanted something to sell, you know, at, at concerts for my my very full 2020 schedule, which <laughs> <laughs> rest in peace, may it. Um, but of course, that didn't happen. So I found myself with all this free time and I was staying with my parents, you know, at, at some point and I was looking through scrapbooks and I thought, man, I'm finding all these old recordings. This might be kind of nice to do, you know, put like a little thing together. And this compilation just really grew and got a lot bigger and uh, just sort of snowballed. And uh, I'm very thrilled that I was able to connect with Club 44 Records and that they were interested in, in releasing this little project. And, you know, very happy that I'm able to get a recording of Tom Selleck and I singing in A Thousand Clowns on the record. Very happy that it was, I was able to get uh, Liza to give me uh, permission to use a recording of something that we did together when we were on the road. And two really beautiful brand new duets, one with Jane Monheit and one with Norm Lewis. So I'm, I'm really, really excited. And we've got Connie Francis to liner notes for me. So wow. it's, a, it's, a, it's a really lovely, <laughs> lovely little look back at the last 25 years. And uh, I'm just, I'm super proud of it. Whoa, Connie Francis, how'd you get to know her? Uh, through our mutual friend, Charles Colello. Charlie Colello and Connie went to school together. They were in a band together and Charlie went on to become uh, the, the, the lead arranger for uh, the Four Seasons. So he arranged every top 10 hit that they ever had and wrote uh, you know, the parts of the, on the Streisand Superman record and Neil Diamond, uh, Sweet Caroline for him and uh, worked for Sinatra and Juice Newton, every, everybody in between. And um, he and I, he and my grandmother go way back and naturally he's like an uncle to me. So one night he, he brought Connie to see my, my concert down in uh, Palm Beach, Florida. And that's it. We just, we became buddies and she invited me over for pasta the next day. And I went <laughs> and, and that's it. I've, I've never left. She's uh, she's such a dear friend now. Is she a good cook? She is a good cook, but you know, she, good. she orders in a lot because, oh. you know, because she's, she's tiny like me and she can't reach all the, all the cupboards and it, and it bothers her. <laughs> you know, she, you should introduce her to Launchables. <laughs> Perhaps a library you know, ladder would help. I don't know a single Italian in the world that would eat a, eat a Lunchables on purpose. <laughs> so that might not happen. But. It's probably true. Probably true. You know, <laughs> I went to my grandmother's house in uh, in, in Brooklyn and ha- had that somebody would would die. 
Yeah. Oh, you'd, yeah. you'd get smacked across the face with a salami or something. It would just it would never work out. Actually, so a related question. Are you uh, half Italian or full Italian? Is, is that your uh, birth name? Is King your birth name? It is my birth name. Uh, thanks. Blame it on Papa. What can I do? But, it's, uh, but my, my mother's side is, is, uh, is all, all Italian. And uh, I, I grew up in a very Italian uh, town and very connected to that to that heritage and that culture and i, I do speak italian and uh Whoa. you know but my father may as well be because my father's a terrific cook so he may, he may as he's an honorary italian uh-huh. for sure. and he's uh-huh. a great and he's got a really green thumb too he his garden is quite impressive do you I, sing italian i do yes and and uh and and have you been uh, uh did somebody try to drag you into the world of opera no, I, I don't know that I would have been very good at that. Uh, <laughs> and so, no, they did. But I, I love opera and I, I love to listen to it. But I just, I, I find that the Italian language, for some reason, the way it's it's constructed, it's so poetic and it's so deep yeah, and so meaningful sure, that, sure. you know, I just, I think there's some of the most romantic songs that we have sure. ever heard, you know, are, are written in Italian. Yeah, yeah. Your whole album is so wonderful, but, but I especially enjoyed uh, the, the those audios of you as a kid. And I, I had to laugh <laughs> at one point. I was listening, and, and I and I thought, the, "Gosh, the sound quality of these early recordings is so good." And you know, I, I'm so used to pe- mm-hmm. growing up with people mm-hmm. who, you know, if they had their early recordings, it, you know, they were made in the 1930s. You know? <laughs> Uh, but I'm thinking this is like, oh, you know, he probably made these recordings in the 21st century. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, no, I think I think some of them were from the 20th century, but I think they were they were taken from cassette, which just leads you to ask the age old question: Is it live or is it Memorex? Ah. <laughs> you know, this is it. I mean, this is we had we, everything that I had is, was on cassettes. You know, so but I'm, I'm glad that we've remastered them and, you know, uh, spruce them up a little bit because, you know, unfortunately, this stuff deteriorates over sure. time. So I'm thrilled that we're able to digitize it and get it, you know, nice and safe. I was noticing that the uh, Club 44 label has got uh, Jim Caruso and Linda Lavin, some other uh uh, they got a, a Les Miserables album and Christmas yeah. Birdland and things like that. So there's, there's a tie back to the to the Broadway uh, scene there. There is, and that's that's thanks to to the wonderful producer Wayne Hahn, who uh, comes to New York for you know various projects, and he came to he came to Birdland and he witnessed a, a, a Jim Crusoe's cast party, and that's how we met. And uh, of course, he just latched on to he thought you know just fell in love with Billy Stretch and Jim Crusoe and Clea Blackhurst and everybody, sure, and uh, and who wouldn't you know? But uh, before long, um, you know, we we so we all sort of started working together because. You know, it's such a small community and, you know, Billy Stritch is a, is a dear friend of mine. And, you know, it's, it's nice, you know, when we, we can share some of these things together, you know, and, and promote each other and support each other. And that's, yeah, you know, Billy put in, you know, the, the, the nice word to them about me and they came to my concert. And after my concert, they said, are you signed to a label? I said, well, not at the moment. They said, don't, <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're signing with us, you know? So uh, they're very supportive of, of what we do in our little community here in New York. And uh, I think it's their mission to try to get this music and what we do out everywhere, you know? And that's why I'm thrilled that this record that I have out now is, is in Target and is in Barnes and Noble and is in, you know, various places because it's, you know, it's, it's just, it's nice to have someone, you know, backing you, you know? Oh, Actually, Nick, Nicholas, I'm going tonight uh, to see Billy at the West. Oh, Bank at Cafe. West Bank Cafe. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. 
yeah. you're gonna have a blast i went last week and i wound up on the news i went how did this happen oh really because <laughs> they were they were filming about uh, the curfew in, in new york being rolled back and so they came and they they filmed billy and they interviewed a whole bunch of people in the re- in the restaurant hmm. that's great i actually i tried to go last week and i couldn't get in uh, ah. so we made a reservation for tonight i'm really oh, well, you're gonna to have it. a blast billy yeah. is you know and you know billy he's, he's just such a genius but uh I, and in fact billy was on billy was playing that that gig with liza in connecticut the one that i the one that she pulled me up onto the stage for uh-huh. and so you know it's i can truly say that i've i've, I've known billy for quite a long time <laughs> in fact did you know who carol burnett was when you got involved with hollywood arms i really did i have to say i'm I um I know it sounds so you know weird or you know fake, but I really did. I by that by the summer of two thousand and one, th- this is how coincidental this was. I had of course I knew who Carol Burnett was because we would watch that show, uh-huh. you know the reruns of it all the time on whatever station it would be on. And in that summer, I had someone suggested that I read Hal Prince's autobiography, uh-huh. so, I, so I did. And by the time that he, when he and Carol both knocked, they both knocked on my dressing room door that that night uh, they were there together and when i opened up the door of course i knew exactly who she was and i i knew exactly who he was because i had just mm. finished reading his book <laughs> mm. and i looked at them and i said uh one of you one of us must be in the wrong dressing room you know? <laughs> what are you guys doing here and they said no no we want to talk to you actually we're we uh you know we're writing it we're working on a new project and we'd like you to be in it you know what do you, uh. what do you say you know i think and the part was originally written for a girl it was written to be carol's uh, neighborhood girlfriend and uh, right then and there, they said, well, why don't we we'll make it the neighborhood boy, you know, ah. <laughs> and uh, so they, they sort of rewrote that that little that character. But uh, but uh, yeah, I knew exactly who they were. And uh, I was, you know, I was like, like you pinch yourself going, are they really at, at my at my dressing room door right now? <laughs> Is this like out of an MGM movie? Like it's very, very, you know, also fantastic. Yeah, That's I mean, amazing. just showing up is a compliment, but then to say we're changing the role from a girl to a boy, whoa, that's <laughs> quite the compliment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm reading the list of your, uh, so you, yes, your online uh, a release party for your album is, is is scheduled for this Wednesday, the 28th at 8 p.m. And uh, I don't know how how much, if any of it will be live or if it's all tape, but anyway, you've got Mike Renzi at the piano. And uh, then it says that, uh, you know, participating in one way or another will be Tom Selleck and the cast of Blue Bloods, uh, Carol Burnett, Fran Drescher, Max von Essen, Michael Feinstein, Connie Francis, uh, Clint Holmes. This is not a full list. I'm just uh, Linda Lavin, Norm Lewis, Christine Petty, Linda Pearl, Mark Sendroff, Billy Stritch, and Veronica Swift. So that sounds like that's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, you you got them all in. I think. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm so excited. Actually, we were we were just putting finishing touches on that yesterday. Um, it is going. It is. It is pre-recorded because you know, in this in this age of virtual things, you yeah. know, we, there's no room for mess ups. You know, we don't we don't want any technical difficulties. So right. it, it has been been pre-recorded, but it is. It's a nice little introduction. 
uh, to 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 me if you know if, if someone's new to to me uh, it, it gives them a nice um, overview and uh, for those you know those wonderful people who have been coming to see me for so long I think they'll really enjoy some of these uh, you know some of the stories and some of the some of the songs and some of the shout outs uh, I'm so thrilled that my friends are joining me too I'm you know and Carol I mean responded in truly 20 minutes and said when do you, when do you need it by? Mm. <laughs> when, and I said, well, whenever is she, it was, it was in my inbox within, within one hour. Oh. Wow. I mean, that's, that's how wonderful she is, you know? So I'm just, I'm thrilled that they're joining me and I'm thrilled that, uh, you know, we're finally getting this, this record out and that people can listen to it. All right. Well, given that you seem to be such an old soul, as the expression goes, who would you have liked to have met who was before your time? Well, there's there's quite a few. I, you can I thought about this a lot. Uh, <laughs> I think some of my favorite uh, performers, you know, I would have to be Sammy Davis Jr., uh-huh. uh, Kay Thompson. Wow. Um, you know, I just there there is just some people that you just go, oh my gosh, I just I want to sit down to lunch with you, you know. Mm-hmm. And those 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 two would be my top guy and my top girl mm-hmm. that I would love to have love to have met, you know, or worked with. Goodness sakes, can you imagine? All right. Now, how did you come to know anything about Kay Thompson? Well, through Liza, you know, Kay was uh, Liza's ah, of mother. course, right? Yeah, and yeah. so, so growing up, you know, I, all I all I heard about from Liza was this this magical fairy godmother mm-hmm. named named Kay, who was just so fascinating and so cool, you know, and uh, would teach us, you know, all these little things, and and uh, I just thought, man. And then as I got older, and with the invention of YouTube, and I was able to look up and see and download and listen, I thought, oh my gosh, this is a, such a brilliant person. I mean, what she did for MGM alone for all those films. I mean, it is so, her watermark is so strong on all those films. And, oh, yeah. and she rarely got, got the credit, you know, in, 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 the, in, in the credits and her influence is so strong and so incredible. And of course, Liza did then did the show at the palace, which was mm. the second act was a tribute to Kate Thompson and mm. to her nightclub act. So mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, I've always Fan, you know, fantasize about what, well, God, I wonder what that lunch would be like, you know, if I could go to lunch with Kay or, or, or work on special material with, with Kay and Roger Edens or something, you know, just, it would be such, such a dream. Wow. In the, in the late nineties, I was working at in theater magazine and we did an entire issue that Liza was the guest editor for. <laughs> so one of the articles was a, a, a history, a whole history of Kay Thompson with yeah. wonderful photos, et cetera. And I uh, had the wonderful job of calling up people who had worked with her to speak about her. Um, and uh, I guess some other people were doing the same. So we, people like Andy Williams gave us. Oh, sure. You know, sure. But, but then I got to call Lena Horn. Oh, and they and she wasn't really doing a lot of interviews, you know, at that point. And sure, not, sure. But I but she made a point of getting on the phone to talk about Kay Thompson and yeah. say, you know, how how influential she was and how helpful and what what a great friend they, you know, she was. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's true. I mean, Kay Thompson really basically shaped that entire generation of of performers between Lena and, and Judy and, and Sinatra, you know what I mean? And these people all, they all were very vocal in their career about how much she, she helped them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so uh, tell us about this event that you're going to be doing this week. We talked a little bit about the album, but what about the event? So the event is uh, filled with stories and some songs, a couple performances and some shout outs uh, from, from some of these participants. And, uh, and uh, we also show a fabulous music video directed by Nellie Beavers uh, with Norm Lewis, 
uh, to, to the duet that we do on, on the record. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm very excited to, for the world to see it, you know, because it's, it's a real celebration of, you know, of, of music and of longevity, you know, and uh, I just, I'm, I'm just very proud of it. I really am. It's, it'll be a nice little journey for any of them, any of people that are interested. <laughs> <laughs> That's really wonderful. So we'll have a link to that in our show notes so that uh, you can get over to there uh, and uh get directly to the event which is going to be streamed through youtube right yes it'll be streaming on youtube and it'll be streaming on on uh, my facebook page you know but i think i think what i'm really looking forward to the most is people sort of getting a a better you know uh context about me because you know a lot of people you know if they hear 25 years celebration it sounds a little bit you know a little a little much you know like because uh, i it's tr- truthfully I, I will be 30 this year so it's it's not <laughs> i will be so you know it's it's all i've ever known you know and i think some people do, don't always really quite know what to make of it but i guess to to see the history and hear the backstory i think it'll give people some more context and go oh okay now i get him <laughs> now i understand where he's coming from <laughs> <laughs> well that is that is really wonderful so uh, Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. Really appreciate you getting up a little bit early on uh, Sunday morning and visiting mm-hmm. with us. Oh, it's and my it's my pleasure. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. We will have links to the event and all different ways to get in touch with Nicholas on Facebook, on Twitter, on his website, and the Club Forty Four uh, Records, uh, the record label uh, website as well. Nicholas, have a wonderful week. We'll speak with you soon. I will. Thank you so much for having me. We'd like to welcome a new sponsor to Broadway Radio, Upstart. We haven't had the official word yet, but you and I both know it's only a matter of months before Broadway reopens, and that means we have to get ready to buy some tickets. Are you carrying credit card balances month after month? You're not the only one. High interest rates make it hard to pay off your debt, but Upstart can help. Join thousands of happy borrowers who have made that final payment. Do you dread looking at your credit card statement every month? Well, we don't blame you. Upstart can help lift that weight off your shoulders so you can finally feel the relief of being free of credit card debt. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan, all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple, fixed monthly payment. Unlike other lenders, Upstart looks at more than just your credit score. Like your income and employment history, this means they can offer smarter rates with trusted partners. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate upfront for loans between $1,000 and $50,000. You can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com broadway. That's upstart, U-P-S-T-A-R-T dot com slash Broadway. And don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based upon your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash Broadway. We'd like to thank Upstart for sponsoring Broadway Radio this week. So that was wonderful uh, talking with Nicholas. Awesome. And uh, it's such a... It's, <laughs> Kills me. Twenty-five year retrospective, but he's thirty years old. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's really wonderful. Yeah. So, so we've had a lot of um, a lot of news this week uh, surrounding the uh, Scott Rudin 
article in the Hollywood Reporter, and then the Equity and the March on the March for Broadway, and all, so much stuff has happened. So, Michael, encapsulate everything that has happened in in under a minute, okay? <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't do that. But I, I just, I, I really was quite um, surprised yesterday. An article came through on Deadline.com, uh, specifically about um, Rudin resigning from the Broadway League, and they, uh, they said it was. Uh, let's see. Uh, I have it right here. Well, I, I'm am t- telling you, I think they keep changing this article daily as they realize that oh. there are, that there are all the that there were all these inaccurate statements in it. I um, see. Uh, but the the title currently reads: Broadway League confirms Scott Rudin resignation. Ramifications on theater landscape could be immense. Uh, in the original version of the article, which I did not make a screen cap of, I think it it actually came out and said that he would not be able to work on Broadway anymore, uh, which was, Oh, that's not true. was not true. But, but um, in the second, the first amended version of it that I got uh, that I did take a screen cap of, it says um, for Rudin himself, uh, today's resignation will be at the very least life altering without the league affiliation. Rudin would seem to be essentially a non-union producer and actors equity does not work with non-union producers. Now that is incredibly incorrect. And Mm -hmm. I can't believe that, uh, you know, that we've gotten to the point where a news organization uh, would actually print something like that. Uh, This article itself (laughs) mentions elsewhere in the article that Disney, um, at least in the beginning, and I think maybe still to this day, uh, is not members of the the Broadway League. Tom Schumacher is, but the organization itself is not, nor is the Ambassador Theater Group. Uh, So those are two, obviously, two organizations that have produced and are producing and will continue to produce on Broadway and obviously continue to work with equity actors. So that's just a a whopping error that got into deadline. And it's kind of amusing to watch this article keep changing uh, as people keep writing in and telling them all the mistakes in it. Well, all the news is fit to print. Uh, You know, our friends over the New York Times and Michael Paulson got into it as well. Mm -hmm. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? Oh, yeah. Well, actually, uh, yeah. So I guess we had all heard that there that the Times was preparing uh, an article on Scott Rudin and or other people in the industry some time ago. And we all kept hearing rumors of that it was about to come out and people were on tenterhooks and then it never did. And now, of course, uh, this this story was broken elsewhere and the floodgates have opened and and now the times finally weighs in they they interviewed i i think they said 33 uh people who had worked with rudin at one point or another and it's quite a lengthy article but um james I'll, i'll i'll phrase it to you as a question several people have said that they thought that the reason that the articles didn't appear much earlier in the times was was frankly, and I hate to say it, because of ad revenue. Um, uh, Rudin has been famous for taking out tremendous, uh, two, you know, full page or two page ads 
ad spreads for his shows uh, constantly. And that's a tremendous, unbelievable amount of money for the times, especially in this day and age when, uh, when so much advertising is moving to other spheres. So um, I have heard several people suggest that that was the reason why it didn't happen earlier. Uh, I I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. I, I, I've, I actually uh, have worked with the New York Times uh, in an editorial capacity, and uh, I know a lot of folks who are on the editorial side at the New York Times, and and I I really never have seen uh, something get killed for for an advertising or financial reason at the Times. I'm not sure that that really that that would really hold up under scrutiny. Um, it would be immensely su- surprising to me, especially since Scott Rudin is well known for not paying his bills. Is that he's right? Be- he's, he's, being su- he's being sued right now by Spotco. Uh, well, I, 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 I don't know about that. Yeah. yeah. No, on that note, I was wondering if that was across the board or if uh, – yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I couldn't exactly. imagine – I couldn't imagine that the Times would let him get away with taking out two-page ads. Well, Scott Rudin page. doesn't call the New York Times and say, I want to buy an ad. Scott – you know, oh, yeah. calls the agency and the agency places oh, so, the ad. Oh, so that's the exactly. So that's the problem. So that was Spotco in many cases, uh-huh. and 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 those are the ones. And he's who, on the hook for millions and millions and millions six, of dollars. Six point three million. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so yeah. I I don't think the financial part of it it and and six point three million dollars is a drop in the bucket for the New York Times. Still, uh, really? Still, <laughs> yes, still, really. Um, well, I mean, no, but that's that's what what Spotco says he owes them. That's not yeah, right. that's sure. not what what he right, right. what what, he what the, at the time yeah, at the times you yeah. know so. Yeah. You know, there there's markups and things like that that happen from, you know, if a Broadway show is going to buy, we're just going to round the numbers off here. If they buy a hundred thousand dollar ad, the New York Times, which could be a full page black and white ad, is a hundred thousand dollars. Exactly. So a hundred thousand dollar ad, the New York Times, Spotco pays the New York Times eighty five thousand and keeps fifteen thousand. You know, there and so certainly it's less than six point two that's owed to everybody. Not just the New York Times, oh, um, but still, uh, like I'm saying, uh, you know, the New York Times uh, revenue has uh, has changed over the last ten years from print sure. to being mostly on online type sure. of things. So, uh, well, anyway, some people suggested that was the reason why the article didn't appear earlier, and other people suggested it was because of threatened lawsuits. I mean, obviously, if you're going to do articles like that, you have to. The, I mean, the, the Times printed Trump's tax returns. They're not afraid of Scott Rudin. <laughs> I mean, Trump is more likely to sue than Scott Rudin, and there's another guy who never paid his bills. So I'd like yeah. to talk about the fact that um, a lot of people say, well, this apology he gave, it doesn't mean anything. Um, are, are we skeptical of what he uh, said as his apology? Do we believe well, he's he apologized uh, ten? He apologized 10 years ago for the same thing and he said uh-huh. he was going to change 10 years ago uh-huh. uh and so you know what uh, what but was also, the more the more i think the, the the most important point here is what exactly could he mean by stepping back mm-hmm. you know what what would that mean for a producer to step back i mean he could step back from he could step back from the daily hands-on micromanaging you know of of the shows Mm -hmm. but that's all but first of all that's that's his whole existence 
you know, uh, so would he step back from that? And and even if he did, would, would then he just then be remained financially? I mean, would he still put the projects together, but not deal with people personally? Uh, I, you know, would, or would he just not have an office staff? Maybe that. I, I think I think it's very fluid about what that really meant, because at first, when I first heard it, it was like his top lieutenant was going to take over and be the, the connection to the production. And so, but the thing was, is that all these stories were not really about the productions. They were about his personal assistants getting him food and and answering phones and assigning Ubers to him and things like that. And uh, that had really nothing to do with productions. And he's also... um, He's also, quote unquote, stepped back from his film and television work as well. Yeah. Uh, and the Pop-Up New York's uh, tiny, uh, organization has sort of said we're moving forward without him uh, to uh, for these events that are celebrating the reopening, uh, future mm-hmm. reopening of Broadway. So, I mean, I, th- I think until we actually have some productions uh you know back in pre-production and back in rehearsal and things like that are we going to understand what this really means about the stepping back part of it yeah, especially with especially I, with ongoing productions such as uh Book of Mormon and sure. uh and uh Mockingbird I was yeah. ki- I was going to say t- inheritance but to kill a mockingbird. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> what is kind of interesting to me uh in terms of the article that came out in the Times, they talked about the fact that he was uh, somebody who really was respected for her his taste and talent. I am quoting um and shows including the Book of Mormon. Gee, I you know I I would never associate the word taste with the Book of Mormon, but that's another story. But what, a producer who asked me not to identify him did say um, is Scott trying to teach Broadway a lesson? You'll be poorer without me because I brought a lot of products to the table and many of them were quality prestige products. Uh, do we have any thoughts on that? Well, one, uh, there were some interesting things, I, I think, in the most recent Times article. One is that it did include quotes from some people who were who were not office staff. Uh, there, there were the, there was that uh, stuff about Adam Rapp mm-hmm. and the stuff about Sarah Rule. Mm-hmm. So it's not; it hasn't been limited to. I mean, maybe the the physical assaults have been have been limited to staff, but uh, but there were have starting to come out stories of of very strange behavior with uh, with uh, creatives and things of that sort. And then uh, what was what was the other what was the other thing thing you just asked about? Well, uh, I mean, Scott Rudin's productions, I'm pulling up IBDB, Who's a Jade of Virginia Woolf that never opened, the Lehman yeah. Trilogy, which, sure. I mean, yeah. Lehman Trilogy existed uh, over in London, sure. and uh, he's and being presented here. Yeah. Uh, West Side Story, which, okay, uh, I, I'm not sure that. You know, no, but I mean, uh, he's the, not producing the girl in the Freudian slip. Uh, no, no. Never live over a pretzel factory. I mean, you know, these these are projects that do have a little more loftiness and sophistication. Oh, absolutely. Uh, m- oh, that's m- right. More often were, than not. Another thing in the article, yeah, that I meant to mention was some people said that that he that they felt that there would be room for other people who would do things like yes, that and have yes, and have been yes. have been uh, bar closed uh, out. Yeah. Yes. Sure. What what word did you use? Closed out. Yeah. yeah. Because uh, of 
Rudin, like uh, um, just lining up uh, properties and, and paying for rights for all sorts of things, even well, and, without- And theater owners knowing that he can deliver the product. Um, and, and saving uh, theaters for him. Sure, yes. sure. Yes. I mean, right. that makes sense, uh, certainly. But, uh, but did we ever think that this Hollywood Reporter article would do so much damage? I didn't. No. You no, didn't either, I, huh? I, I didn't either. I, I mean, I- uh, I was I was thinking about this, um, you know, I figure that about once a year or so we have this uh, the some sort of article that is really blockbuster that shakes Broadway. Uh, but it moves on. I mean, we yeah, we, we thought about I thought about this, uh, this, uh, this gentleman who was over at uh, Chicago who had been with Chicago for many, many years and was sort of uh, removed from the production a couple of years Leffel, ago. Do you, do Jeff you... Leffelholtz. Is that what so, you mean? Yeah. And so... committed suicide. Yes. Yeah. And uh-huh. I mean, nothing ever came of that. Yeah. Nothing, you know, and, and at the time when this had happened, I was like, wow, this is really going to change Broadway. And it just didn't. I, I think, I don't know about you, I think it all comes down to how famous are the people involved. Sure. Uh, there, there were, I can think of articles on, on two other, at least two other um, Broadway people, uh, you know, sort of Me Too type articles mm-hmm. that, that didn't result in anything. Uh, because I don't, I don't think those two people have a very high public profile. Sure, and sure. and sad to say, uh, Jeff Leffelholtz. Yeah, indeed. You know, I mean, you might say, Let's well, face Ch- it. Chicago is a very famous show, yeah, and it's, you know, uh, but I, yeah, and I, and I don't know how you know if the Weislers are famous in the same way that that Scott Rudin is. Right. Sure. Right. Yeah. 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 So this is uh, uh, it's interesting to me that uh, people. Uh, might think Scott Rudin, you know, could take his ball and go home and, mm-hmm. and we'll all be sad. But uh, the story of Broadway in the last five years is too many shows, not enough theaters. Right. It's not been, we don't have the right producers or, or enough money to bring shows to Broadway. It's been everybody sitting on the outside because Scott Rudin's taken all the theaters. Right. So, so that's <laughs> that's the point I tried to make earlier. And I think that is, you know, now whether those people... Uh, will have um, the same uh, track record or, or, or mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, I mean, uh, what kinds of things they're going to be producing. It seems to me that, that, that generally speaking, that Scott Rudin has been more into prestige than necessarily making a profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that sense, I, I think maybe uh, some people, are afraid that they're going to miss, you know, we're going to miss out on certain things that wouldn't be presented otherwise. But, uh, you know, that's hard to say if that will be true. Uh, we'll have, you know, maybe, maybe some of the things that he produced will be done instead by the, the roundabout or, or uh, Lincoln center or Manhattan theater club. So uh, uh, last week we talked about um, uh I had seen an article about Rob Roth, the director of Beauty and the Beast, and at the time I said that we couldn't confirm that this was an act because it was just a posting on Facebook. But it's since been confirmed, and uh, and Rob has uh, I'm going to say stepped back or stepped aside from the production of Beauty and the Beast that he was working on in the UK, and so. 
I just wanted to follow up on that and say that 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 had been clarified for us as well. You guys have anything else to add about Scott before we move on? Let's move on. Okay. So uh, we don't typically do this here, but Michael, you sent me a great video of Jeremy Jordan on the day I saved The Greatest Showman. And I really enjoyed it and wanted to share it with our <laughs> listeners as well. So I put that in the show notes. So how did you come across that? I don't remember what, you know, how YouTube is. It leads you from yeah. one thing to another. <laughs> and I think we had all seen, uh, oh, this isn't what I was watching, but uh, uh, Jeremy uh, did that amazing video, which we featured before of him singing. Uh, what's the title? It's all coming back to me. Yeah, uh, I think that was uh -huh. the title. Yeah. Th which is a Jim Steinman song. And and of course, Mr. Jim Steinman just, just died. Yeah. So I think um, th that that led me to uh -huh. this, this video, which I had never seen. And it's um, uh, maybe you could just kind of describe it briefly. James. So he's at fifty four. Uh, Jeremy's at fifty four below, and uh, he's t he's talking about this uh, story where um, he's asked by Pasek and Paul to come and sing some of the music from The Greatest Showman. Uh, for Hollywood backers because for one reason or another Hugh was not available and it's a very very funny very Jeremy story uh, and he sings some of the music and he tells a charming story so I, I recommend you spend a few minutes and watch it it's a wonderful uh, wonderful little piece yeah uh, the payoff is quite hilarious yes uh, exactly. you know I think Jeremy is really he's as good at patter <laughs> as he is at singing he he is so funny and well, i i just loved it well there yeah. you are if Hugh jackman does drop out of the music and then jeremy can sing you got trouble and all the the, <laughs> the first the 76 trombones will be yeah. all set by the way i really believe i'm the kiss of death you know on sunday night i was looking for something to play while transcribing notes and for the first time ever i said well you know i've never listened to this album called the confidence man let's do it and jim steadman's name's on the album the next day i found out he died i'm this happens to me so often wow. i swear i've got to stop playing albums because really uh, people die as a result of it and I'm, I'm very sorry about it but it's just ironic this happens to me so often so anyway um all of you who have albums write me and tell me not to play them so that you can live a long happy life and that is quite something because it's not as if jim steinman has a lot of uh things that you would be listening to indeed i mean the <laughs> thing was i had never listened to it before i mean i i was looking for something to play and in between company and um uh, connecticut yankee there it was and i thought well you know i've never listened let's try it so and look what happened <laughs> all right so that kind of wraps it up for today peter do you have an answer to last week's trivia a musical has a dance with dance music and no lyrics in it, but it does have a name that mentions a certain nationality. When it was first adapted for TV, the dance retains its nationality, but when it was next adapted for TV, the nationality was changed. What's the musical and the two names of the dances? Well, I'm talking about the 1959 musical Once Upon a Mattress that has a dance called The Spanish Panic, which was retained for the 1964 TV version. But for the 1972 version, it was changed to the Polish Panic. Why? Alliter alliteration, maybe? Go figure, go no. Anyway, 
Michael Potentia was the first to get it, although he did have a bit of a head start, wouldn't you say? Otherwise, Paul Whitty was first, followed by Tony Janicki, J. Aubrey Jones, Brigadude, Jack Leshner, Stephen Bell, Mike Meany, and Robin, Robbie Roselle. This week's question involves Pig Latin. In case you don't know what that is, it's when words that begin with a consonant sound take all the letters before the initial vowel and place them at the end of the word sequence and then add A to it. So pig would be ig pay and trash, one of my favorite words in pig Latin, would become ashtray. All right. <laughs> Get it? Good. You got it. Now, if pig Latin were applied to the name of a musical from the 70s, you'd get a word that is often heard in hospitals and medical offices. What's the name of the musical in both English and pig Latin? <laughs> All right. I, I was going to try to translate what I was going to say next into pig Latin, but I couldn't do yeah, it too hard, yeah. on the fly. Yeah. So if you have an answer for that, <laughs> what were you going to say, Michael? No, some people are good at that. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, can't, I can't do that. I can do math on the fly. I can't do pig Latin on the fly. So if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, uh, Michael, you are bringing us some Porgy and Bess. Yes, I think we've used the musical moments to commemorate some anniversaries um, already, but this may be one of the rare times where we use it to commemorate the anniversary of a studio cast album of a musical, not... uh, not based on an actual stage production. Porgy and Bess originally opened on Broadway in 1935. And of course, there weren't really original cast albums in those days. So there wasn't one of Porgy and Bess. Uh, I think the first one was in 1942 or so when there was a revival on Broadway and a recording of uh, lengthy excerpts from the piece were made at that point with the original two stars, um, uh, Todd Duncan and Ann Brown. Uh, but there was nothing even remotely approaching a complete recording of Poor Game Best until 1951 when Lehman Engel conducted a brilliant, brilliant recording that was originally released on three LPs. Uh, uh, as it is, it's still cut uh, uh, quite a lot of music. Uh, from the from the full score, I think I would say at least a half an hour because Porgy and Bess is a tremendously long work. But as I said, it was three LPs. It was more of the the piece than had ever been recorded before, and it really gave people a a wonderful idea of of the totality of Porgy and Bess that no one had had a chance to hear before unless they happened to see it on Broadway. Uh, so it really was a great achievement this recording and aside from from that aspect of it the cast was really really superb especially the porgy who was a magnificent singer named Lawrence Winters uh he I don't know a lot about him I do know he did also sing at the Met which was very significant for an African American in those days the uh, in the early 50s late 40s uh he and he sang roles like as Amanasro in uh in Aida at the Met so he he did have that distinction and he is to my mind the best porgy 
ever recorded. Uh, and that that's saying a lot because there have been many, many recordings of Porgy and Bess over the years, but he is absolutely superb in terms of his, his range, uh, the range of his voice, the beauty of his voice, his acting ability, his commitment to the role just spectacular. So our musical moment for this week is the the grand finale of the whole shebang uh, uh, of Porgy and Bess. It's, oh Lord, I'm on my way. And just listen to the beauty of, of Winter's voice. Also the, uh, the, the magnificent choral arrangements, the beautiful orchestrations, all superbly conducted by Lehman Engel. Um, I, I think it's, it's, as I said, I, I think it's a benchmark this recording is a benchmark of the of the recording industry and certainly of musical theater recordings. And please enjoy it as this week's musical moment. Great. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.